Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, uh, why don't we dispense of all the news in the world of sports and go right to our man to talk some Sixers basketball? You think that's a good way to start the show? Let's have at it. All right, Jeff, our man Keith Pompey has returned from the ugliness we saw in Boston the other night. Uh, Keith, uh, I thought the game could be summed up in one tweet you put out in the third quarter. Uh, this is bad, y'all. Uh, <laughs> talk to us about the first two games in Boston as we head back to Philadelphia tonight. I mean, the good thing about the 76ers is that they got the split. The bad thing is they look like they took a step back when um, Joel and B came back. Uh, um, you know, the one thing is it, it has to do with the rust and everything like that. I also think that Boston was motivated. The Sixers looked like they were going through the motions a little bit at times. They just they just didn't look like the same team. The one thing is about um, coming back home, you you uh, you kind of expect a better performance. I know a lot of people are saying they got blown out, but typically – you know, sometimes the team that loses, the team that gets blown out, especially coming home where role players tend to play better, um, you know, they tend to play – they tend to have more fight than the team that blew someone out because they're thinking like, you know what, we crushed them. We, we've been crushing them all season. We're going to just handle our business. And, you know, that show-up approach. So I feel like the Sixers, you know, have a chance um, – uh, Friday and, and, and they can, they can do some. All right. So before we get to each game individually, with regard to Joel Embiid, was it better for him to come back for game two and get his legs under him regardless of the outcome of the game, or would it have been better for him to stay out for a game and then have to go through that for game three? No, that's a tough question to answer, you know, cause I asked him that after the game um, and he was like, look, Keith, um, it's not going to get any better. You know, a, two days is not not going to help me. Um, it's a four to six-week injury. Um, he felt like he was out of shape, and he felt like this getting this game over with would help him. The thing about it is, you know, Joel Embiid is the best player on the team. He's the MVP of the league. So it's one of those things where he thinks he can help the team. You know, you bring him back. Um they're going to have to get. They're going to have to get him back in the mix to playing with him, anyway. You you know what I mean. And what happens if they would have lost, and then that game would have been his first game back. So then you're down one one without him, and then all of a sudden you're bringing him back, and you know he's rusty, and. You know, so it's like a catch-22, you know, like people, if they would have won the game without him, everybody was like, great decision. But if they would have lost the game and then they go in there and he looks rusty like this and they lose at home, then people are saying, wow, we're down 1-2. You, you, you understand? It's, it's like a catch-22, Jeff. It really is. Yeah, I know. But but here here's my – I think that he should have come back. I think that if he was healthy enough to come back, you already got one game in Boston – you mm -hmm. might as well let him get his because he hasn't played for a while. So he's yeah. got to get his game conditioning back. People don't realize that game conditioning can go away that quickly. Yeah. But what concerns me going forward is not his conditioning now, 
What concerns me is something that he said after the game, which was that he was letting the game come to him. And if if he's letting the game come to him, does that mean that because of his knee, that he's going to be less aggressive and therefore less effective? You know, and I, I, the way I took it, and that's a great question, but the way I took it is, you know, Joel Embiid, if we're going to be real, he caught a lot of flack a lot of times when he came back because the team was playing a certain way and he came back and then all of a sudden he wanted to, like people felt like he wanted the offense to run through him. So in regards to saying I'm letting the game come to me, now you may say he was trying to test out the knee, but also I feel like he didn't want to come in and want to be as ball dominant and gunning and then next thing you know, if things don't go right, people are looking at him and saying, you messed up the flow of the team. So if you notice, there was a lot of times where I felt like, at least early on, he was playing as if he was playing against the Brooklyn Nets, whereas when guys would run at him, he would pass the ball to teammates. I felt like he really was trying to do his best to be a great teammate. And then, you know, he fell a couple of times, this and that, they're down then it looked like he became a little bit more aggressive. So I took it that way. You know what I mean? I did. I took it like he, because let's face it, if he would have went out there and scored 40 points or whatever, and James Harden and them would have been standing around, the next thing you know, people would have said, I told you we're better off without him. I told you we're better off without him. I was actually surprised with the five blocks in the first half, frankly, um, that, you know, the second half was what it was. They didn't play anybody in the fourth quarter, and they got blown out the gym in the third quarter. Uh, James Harden in game one put up 45 points. A lot of people didn't think that James Harden still existed. James Harden game two on much shorter rest put up 12 points, two of 14 shooting in his encore. Uh, how concerned should I be that James Harden is not going to get 10 days off between these games each time? I mean, you know, it seems like that's the thing. Like if you if if you people who if you pay close attention, it seems like whenever James Harden comes back from the all-star break, whenever it's his first game of the season, uh, you know, uh, first couple games after coming back from an injury, it's always he's playing his best basketball. Like those are the games. And the concern always is like what can he do when when he's playing every other night? Less rest, he's getting older you know, things like that. So, you know, that is a, a, a legitimate concern. Um, I also think that, you know, uh, Boston made a, a, a conscious effort of getting up in his skin, doing things to make him not get to those spots. But there were some shots that he had that was open and he missed. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, that's a question that is hard to answer because, you know, right now that is his MO. Like, what happens when you're you're playing X amount of games? And when you look at the 76ers playoff schedule, uh, they probably got the toughest series as anybody else. People playing two games, then they rest for three days, and then they come back. And that's not really helping the 76ers. Is Boston is a younger team, and they can do it. But when you have not just James Harden, but P.J. Tucker and Joel Embiid with his knee, is, is, is a problem for them. It's going to be a problem for these guys to be able to play at a, a high level every other day. 
You know, is that something that the front office missed in its calculation of bringing in all of these very veteran players is that you now had to go through an 82 game schedule and expect some of these guys that are in their mid to late thirties to hold up and then get to the playoffs and play every other day. You know, is that's, that's, um, it could have been. Yeah. But see, the thing about it is I don't think, see, I mean, yeah, that's a, that, yeah. I mean, but, but the, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Like who was really out there for what they had and the miscalculation comes or, you know, the cap space, you're like, you're, you're trying to get people in, you're trying to get them in. You made the trade for Harden. Harden basically took $15 million less uh, and they got reprimanded for tampering so he could bring his two buddies in. Like the problem is, were you going to be able to go out there and get another free agent for that money? No, you just weren't like, so these were the best available dudes. Um, but the crazy part is if my, if, if, excuse me, if Boston would have handled uh, the Atlanta Hawks in five games, like we all thought they were going to, we wouldn't be talking about this. Like they would have played Saturday um, and they would have played Monday and they wouldn't have played again until Friday. You know what I mean? So it, this is the crazy thing. I mean, so you got to blame the Boston's up. The, the schedule was set up for the Sixers to rest up, but Boston didn't handle his business. And now this is where we are. I so to... all of this talk before, before that last Boston Atlanta game about the Sixers actually needed Atlanta to win was erroneous is what you're saying that it was actually better for the Sixers you know, funny. to have have played earlier it could I mean like maybe I mean you look at it and you saw how they won the games now maybe who knows I mean like it is a again that's a catch-22 but yeah I think I think it, it's one of those things so it benefited probably Joel but it may have hindered James and PJ, you know? Now, PJ, I'm not saying, you know, he's a problem, but I know that James would have benefited from having more rest. Yeah, he would have. The thing that... So, oops, sorry, hmm? Keith. Sorry, Keith. The no, thing, go ahead. The thing you that got concerned me the most last night was there was no spacing for this team. They couldn't move anywhere out there. They, they looked like the slower team. I don't know if that was the second game of a, a day off, if, if we're going to see something different. But I felt like their lack of spacing led to contested shots that were missed, which led to Boston running out and getting these open three-pointers because the Sixers couldn't set their defense. How do they make those adjustments going into game three so that they can, one, do what they want on the offensive end with Joel in there, but two, set themselves up so they can be back on defense so they don't give up these transition points? Yeah, I mean, that was crazy. It looked like they forgot how to play basketball, you know, a little bit. But also, it was also one of those things where, um, you know, I, I felt like it was just a weird day. It was kind of like while Joel was trying to get people involved, they were standing around watching. There was no one cutting. They, it was three guys, at a couple possessions. You saw three guys standing on the same side draw in the crowd um it was it was in it, it'll enable boston to guard half the court and then there was really no one underneath the basket you know what i mean so that's where you're saying those 
those those long rebounds and going the other way. So it was bad. You know, and to me, to me, honestly, I wonder how much of that had to do with A again, Joel coming back, and then that day. Meaning it I felt like when Joel got MVP, it was great for Joel and it was great for the 76 to say we got a guy who had MVP. But I felt like it, it was also a distraction. Like I felt like guys weren't as focused as they normally are because right then and there, once he won it, it was all about it's Joel and B day. You know, like they celebrated the day before. He said, oh, we only got five minutes and we got to focus on the game. But that five minutes turned into you go to shoot around and then everybody's congratulating them there, the media and whatnot. And then after that, he goes and he has a press conference and he's then he does one on ones with TV stations. And then everybody's like seeing MVP. I felt like that had an impact on everyone to the point where they were just standing around. It was like, it's Joel Embiid day. Let's see what Joel does. And um, guys were not being as aggressive as they normally were before. And he was trying to not be who he was before. Like, so it, to me, I would really like to see what they do in game three to see if this is a problem or if it was just a result of what transpired on Wednesday. Before we talk to you about some other NBA games and series, there was something that happened last night that troubled me, which is Marcus Smart, who seems to be throwing his body around and has a history of doing this. Last night, I think it was on P.J. Tucker where he just went after the ball, whipped right into the back of his leg. And, and Tucker's lucky that he wasn't seriously injured. If he does that to, to Embiid, is the NBA going to do anything about this? Or, or after that incident, does the NBA say anything? Or does Market Smart just keep getting away with, I'm just a gritty player who's just diving after the ball? The he time? did something similar to Embiid, and they called a foul on Embiid for falling on him, because I don't know where the hell he was supposed to fall. Yeah, I think if that happens, it, you know, and Embiid gets hurt, you know, I think it's going to be a flagrant foul. But it was ridiculous a couple things. Like, there was one point, you know, where I, I think that should have been a flagrant on PJ. I mean, excuse me, on Marcus with PJ. I also think that, um, you know, um, at, at Jason Tatum should have at least received the technical for when he shoved the ref out the way. <laughs> like, you know, if it, is, it was like, you know, so – it was two things that I saw that happened. He did it to game. Harden in game one, too. Marcus Smart did the same thing to Harden in game one where he almost rolled his ankle up, too, and Harden was yeah, limping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's that's part of his stick. That's part of his game. I think um, – and, and I don't think, like, trying to hurt people. I think he plays physical. He gets in people's head. He frustrates them, and he does certain things to them, you know. Um, but, yeah, yeah but, that – okay. Yeah, but but Keith, he knows the consequences of his actions. When you're flying at people's legs, the consequences of flying at people's legs, regardless if you're going for the ball, is a potentially serious injury. At some point, the, Joel Embiid is now the MVP of this league, the most valuable player of this league. Do they, why would they not go to Marcus Smart or the Celtics at this point? and say, hey, look, you can't do stuff like that. We get, you can go after the ball, you can die, 
but but you do have to worry about whether or not there's a potential of injury here and there's going to be consequences if somebody is seriously injured as a result yeah i mean i don't know he may get a fine later but it's ridiculous and here's my thing if i'm marcus smart and I, i don't think i'm that type of person that i would do stuff like that but if i if i did do it and 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 no one reprimanded me for it. Um, I might keep doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Until That's I get what I'm afraid of. Yeah, reprimanded. You know, and you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of things that happen in the course of games nowadays. Where let's just say if PJ Tucker would have done something back to him, then they all would have seen that. I mean, it's just you know. I mean, and Doc said that a lot of things are happening. Like look at uh, Draymond. You know, Draymond reacted to Sabonis holding his leg, and he he stepped on him, which he shouldn't have done. But there was two wrongs that were done in that game. So a lot of times, a guy who who's the instigator, in unfortunately, they they don't get uh, reprimanded. It's the guy who reacts to it. Yeah, despite the fact that there's instant replay of whatever they want during and after the game, now they only get the retaliation. Uh, we're getting towards the end. Wanted to ask you some of the other series. The NBA has to be happy. They've got major markets, New York, the Lakers, um, Jimmy Butler, the way he's been playing with Miami, though his injury. Um, what's the talk around the league about these playoffs? I mean, the excitement level, the Kings and Lakers, or the Kings and the Warriors that had in the first round, the ratings are up. They've got to feel good around the league right now? Yeah, a lot of people I talk to are. I mean, you look at it. It's, it's, it's weird. Like you, you think about it. You got the number one, the uh, uh, a, a number a, a number one seed, a number two seed, and a number four seed all were bounced in the first round of the playoffs. Now, a number four, you could say, okay, that's a pick, right? Four or five things can happen, but you didn't expect them to lose in five games. You expect that to go at least six, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, there is some excitement, you know, and and, and you look at it and. But but the funny part about it is you say to yourself, is that really all that surprising? Um, yes and no. It's surprising because of Miami's injuries. But then when you look at Miami, Miami was a team that was basically waiting for the playoffs all year. They were the number one seed last year. The problem is they were such on cruise control, it seemed like, that they, they almost messed up, right? They almost like like was in a deep slumber and almost didn't make the playoffs. But uh, the the thing is, it just seems like playoff basketball and regular season basketball are just two different animals. And if you got these dogs, so to speak, that's what you do. And, and that goes back to your question earlier in the season, Jeff, like you look at that Miami team, you know, it's a team that they have a lot of older players. And what they did was it was a matter of, we know that we have a roster that can win a championship, right? So we're we're comfortable saying we're not going to go out there in the regular season and try to be the top dog. We're just going to try to tread along, tread along until we get to the playoffs and we're going to step it up. And 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 that's what they're doing because you look at that roster, you know, they have guys, Kevin Love, who they just picked up, Kyle Lowry, um, you know, Jimmy Butler. You know, these are older guys. They're like, you know, Kyle Lowry's one of the oldest guys in the league. Same with Kevin Love. But yet and still, that's what you need. You need those veteran-type guys to win a championship. But it just seems like 
Boston didn't help him out. Joel Embiid's injury didn't help the Sixers out. To me, the, you talk about what's a surprise, what's not a surprise. To me, the biggest surprise is the lack, the fact that everybody seems surprised about the West. That the Denver Nuggets did go through the season, ended up the number one seed, and you have L.A., you have Golden State, and you have Phoenix. And it still looks like the Nuggets are the deepest and strongest team. I mean, they're as of as, as of the time we're doing this, it's two up. Yeah, I, but I also think that when you look at Phoenix, you know, a lot of times when you make these trades in the middle of the season, and then not only that, like uh, Kevin Dur- um, Kevin Durant, you know, he he's a guy who was injured too. Once they got traded, mm-hmm. he was traded. I think it's still a filling out process. I honestly think that if Golden State, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I could be wrong, but I feel like if Golden State comes out, if they beat the Lakers, I think Golden State will represent the West. I always felt that way. I did. I just did. Because I feel like you look at these teams and the three teams that you're talking about, you know, we're talking about, what, four, five, six, or maybe in the Lakers, number seven, whatever. They all had, had injuries. But they also had older guys like LeBron, other people. And then you you talk about Phoenix, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, um, the the Golden State Warriors, pick a guy, right? They've been there for a while. They might not be as old as LeBron and them, but they've been there for a while. And these are all teams who know how to switch that, uh, uh, flip the switch, so to speak. So I always felt like if those teams stayed healthy and didn't have problems, they would be better than the other squads. I feel like Memphis is a great regular season team. You know, Denver, you know, they they, they, they look good. But I also think that typically when you make a middle of the season trade, the last team that, that to do something like that and go to a championship, I think it was, who was it? It was the Detroit Pistons with Rasheed Wallace, right? I mean, was it? I mean, it was, it's been so long ago that teams do that. So, especially for a key piece, like a, a, a not like a bench player, but a key piece. So I think it, it wait, takes wait, it, was, it wasn't when the Sixers got Jimmy Butler. They didn't go to the championship. <laughs> yeah. but, and here's the thing about that. The whole Jimmy Butler thing. And no, the whole Jimmy Butler thing is they made that trade back in November. Right. So mm-hmm. that was November. So they had them for a while. That was the second what month in the season, early in the season. Um, but yeah, Tobias, no, they, it, it's hard to do that, make a trade with a key person and win it. You know, it just is. All, it right. Is. All right. My last question for you today is if the Sixers had kept Jimmy Butler, would the Sixers have another cha- championship trophy in their case by now? I, I, would, I would have to say yes. I think they would have. It hurts, Keith. I mean, Jimmy Butler has that gene. I mean, they call him playoff Jimmy. Now they call him playoff Jimmy, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I, I honestly think I, I, looking back and I know a lot of people talk about people saying that this team is the deepest team. I don't I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, this team has some shooters. It has some this, but this team also has doesn't have a lot of two way players. It doesn't. Right. Um, that team has some guys who were gritty coming off the bench. And what happened is they said, hey, but we need some shooters. So what they did is they got rid of those guys and got shooters. And now they realize, oh, we need some specialists. We need this. We need that. So I felt like 
that team, and you don't have to be super duper deep. I think that was the best starting lineup that they had in a in a long time. And you know, I guess Sports Illustrated agree with it, having them on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So I think that yeah, that team, if that team would have came back next year, I honestly think that that team would have won a championship. Uh, we'll want for that one for a long time, Keith. Uh, it should be loud down there tonight with Joel getting his MVP award. We look forward to your coverage. Uh, follow you at Pompeii on Sixers. Thanks for always giving us some time to break it down, man. Thanks for having me, fellas. Thanks for having me. You know, if Keith's right about the Warriors, especially after their big win last night, uh, they're going to be tough coming out the West. I remember a couple of weeks ago when the Sixers went out there and you're like, Sixers are going to win this, right? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, Golden State is still kind of Golden State, even though they're different, right? Well, the thing is, they're not different, because if you look at who's playing now, you would have thought by now with, with Golden State, the young guys would have started to take over. You know, they signed Jordan Poole. They have Jonathan Kaminga. It was supposed to be those young guys that were supposed to transition to more important roles. But if you look at last night, what did you see? You saw Jordan Poole, I think, had six points. Kaminga came off the bench. The guys that are still getting it done are the guys that are part of that that are that dynasty. Clay Thompson had a you know game six Clay that they talk about. He had it in game two. Uh, I think he was eight for eleven from three points, and Steph was just Steph. So those two, along with I hate to say this with Draymond, are still the very heart of the Golden State Warriors. And look, I mean, that series has been very exciting to watch. Uh, I enjoyed the stories coming out today, trying to make me feel better about the Sixers getting blown out in Boston that, oh, teams who win game one get blown out in game two. Stop. That's ridiculous. If you really if that's going to make you feel any better then you're delusional. Oh, I didn't say it makes me feel better. I said I enjoy the stories trying to make me feel better. Yeah, but Mike, but. But my concern remains that the Sixers, you know, it was interesting to hear Keith's perspective about the idea that it actually would have been better for Boston to win earlier because the Sixers would have had more time between games. Um, I think that's going to be the same thing, believe it or not, with the Lakers, is that LeBron needs that extra time off and the Sixers need that extra time off. I still don't understand why why AD needs the extra time off for the Lakers. He's only, I think, 30 years old, but it seems like he gets gassed after every other game. I completely missed that, too. I kept thinking it was a good thing that the Hawks series was going longer because it meant Embiid had more time to rest, but it actually means that Embiid has the same time to rest, but the series doesn't play out well for that, I just think it's going to be a raucous atmosphere when he gets that award tonight. You have to hope they play better. I know you don't think they win the series, but what do you think? Wait, wait, wait. wait. So, so the raucous atmosphere tonight in Philadelphia, the constant chance of MVP before the game. I mean, we've, we've, we've heard for years MVP, MVP when Joel Embiid goes to the line for free throws. Is he going to be happy, Joel? And is that a bad thing again? I hope he's angry. angry slighted Joel in order to do well. I hope he's angry and motivated to show he's the MVP. I I think that the game the other night wasn't what he wanted, but he needed to have it to get back into it. He clearly 
needed to shake the rust off. But I also Some, think I, you know what somebody needs to do. Somebody needs to ask him pre-game. By the way, it, or should you really be the MVP if the one game that you were in, you got blown out, and the one game you didn't play, they won? Maybe that'll make him feel slighted. Just we, ask him. We need something to do that to motivate him. Just ask him if Ben Simmons has called to congratulate him. Let's move oh. on and talk some baseball. Wow. <laughs> that'll get him. Bringing up Ben Simmons, huh? That'll get him. He won't like that the attention's on Ben. Let's talk some baseball. Unfortunately, at this point, I love the Phillies. They're 15 and 17. If there was one theme, the first 32. It's unfortunate that you love the Phillies? It's unfortunate that we have to be brought down by the way the Phillies have been playing. I I mean, look, it's early in the season. I keep reminding myself that I don't want to treat it like football with every game, but 32 games into the season, their pitching operation looks good for stretches, but disaster lurks. They come back from LA with the highest team ERA in the National League, second worst in all of baseball at 5.13. They've allowed double-digit runs in three straight games for just the second time since 1958, Jeff. That's not the record we want to set. And they're coming home to play teams that hit. They play the Red Sox, they play the Blue Jays, and then they go to Coors Field. I, the pitching, everybody well, looks well, at... You're not, worried, you're not worried about the Rockies, I hope. I'm worried about the Phillies pitching in Coors Field. I'm not worried about the Rockies. I'm worried about the way the Phillies are playing more than their opponents are playing. Their pitching. Well, I wouldn't worry about. I wouldn't worry about them in Coors Field. They stink everywhere. I'm worried the, that the Phillies pitching. The problem is the Phillies pitching is not just bad. It's bad with no. There's nothing behind them. There is nothing in the minor leagues right now that's going to come up and save the day. There's nobody down there to fix this. So what do you do at this point? When you have Nola, whose velocity is down, you have Taiwan Walker, who seems to not be able to get into any type of groove. Wheeler seems to be coming around. You're depending on Stram to somehow hold it together, but the last game he didn't look particularly good. And Bailey Falter. How many times do I have to say Bailey Falter without you cringing before you realize he shouldn't be a fifth starter? We talked before the season, you wanted to have a six-man rotation there are no six. You're still hoping Ranger Suarez comes back and saves the day. What other hope do I have right now? And and the bullpen hasn't been the bullpen that we expected. They have at times, and then they've self-destructed at, but that, at well, other that, times. But, yeah, but that's not what you need. You need consistency in the bullpen. Soto hasn't been what we thought he was. Could somebody please get me Matt Vierling back. <laughs> You didn't want Matt Fearling to go in the front side. No, I didn't want Matt Fearling to go. I thought that he was great as a utility player, but hitting is not the issue. Pitching is the issue. The question is, did they get the right guys for pitching to get through the season? Right now, they haven't gotten through a fifth of the season with this pitching staff, and they have to get through a whole season with it unless you're going to start making trades. And if you're going to make trades, you're going to have to trade off some of this offense. And I know people sit there and say, well, let's just trade Castellanos. Nobody's taking on that salary. The guy that you're going to have to trade if you get if you're still in the race and need pitching and want to get good pitching is going to be Alec Bohm. Oh, look at you. Um, can I? You know, we've been very supportive of baseball's new rules so far and mm-hmm. the pace of play. Can I bitch about the stupidity of baseball that you have one of your top superstars <laughs> in the league? running around the bases, coming back from injury without an arm brace on because you can't stop the game for 10 extra seconds for him to put a brace on? 
How stupid is that? Forget it's Bryce Harper. Anybody. You know, you ta- you make the bases bigger under the guise of, oh, it's safer for the players, but we'll let the dude with the reconstructed arm run around the bases because we don't want to hold up for five seconds so he can put the brace on effectively. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So, so what is it that you want him to have extra time to do? To put the brace on his arm. It's for protection. Okay. How long does it take to put a brace on your arm? Why can't the first base coach have it? The fa- first base, the first base coach has it. They have twenty seconds. Okay. Apparently, it takes a little oh. bit longer time, and therefore, he wasn't able to do it. Ten seconds, fifteen seconds. I don't know if you're going to sit there and tell me you're making rule changes for player mm-hmm. safety, which we all know was BS to begin with. They made rule changes to get more runs, which has successfully happened. But don't tell me you want players to be safer and then not let them actually put on equipment. No, to be safe. I, well, I disagree with you. I don't think that they made rule changes to get more runs. I, they think they got rule changes because they thought that they were going to become a dying sport because it was too long. I think that the short shortening the game was the main goal. Extra runs certainly helps, but that wasn't the main goal. Can I also give another, this is really stupid moment? Sure. So the Phillies submitted a formal request to give Harper permission to acknowledge the crowd at Citizens Bank Park tonight without getting a okay. timer violation. Baseball. Well, and did, have they ruled? Uh, not yet. <laughs> okay. So it's, here's what they leave do. it up to the umpire sometimes to have discretion. Like, why, man? They've saved the time. Give 30 seconds. Let he, let he, baseball he, have these moments. What what moment is there? The moment why, that the, why, can't, why the, can't it happen during pregame? Why why can't when they because, Dan Baker will get out there and he will announce the lineup and at the time that he announces the lineup, why can't everybody get because up the player that? isn't on the field to wave at that moment. They're prepping for the game. You know these moments are fun in baseball. Again, the game is still supposed to be fun. It's a half hour faster if you take a thirty second break so he can wave to the people that are cheering and screaming MVP because he hasn't been back and came back faster than anybody that's ever had it, and not just him. You had Trey Turner return in Do- to the Dodgers. You have players go back to teams that they want to do tributes and want to do other things. And baseball says, no, don't have fun. Don't acknowledge it. Just screw that. No, I don't, I don't agree with you. I, I don't think this That's is fine. a fun issue. It's I think, better. I the show is better when we don't agree. I, I know. But I, I, uh, look, I think that you should be able to have fun. But the problem is, 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 is that sports also takes advantage of rules. We see what happens Every time they change a rule, somebody finds a way to take advantage of it. And the fact is, if you keep changing the rules to find exceptions, then people will take advantage of those. People will go out for curtain calls. Fans are not stupid either. Fans will start doing stuff too to extend it. There'll be all sorts of ways. So if you keep making, where do you draw the line at exceptions? I get it when it comes to player safety. So I'm with you. If, If Bryce Harper can sit there and show that it takes... 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute to put on a brace instead of 10 seconds to put on a brace, then fine. He could be able to show that. He could submit a video that shows this is how long it takes to do it. And if the MLB says no at that point, then I get it. I don't know if that's happened. I doubt that it's happened. But the fact is, is because we know, look what happens with the shift. They put a shift in place and one team immediately found a way to say, okay, we're well, just going to have two outfielders. It, it doesn't matter. They take advantage of rules. And so you can't keep creating exceptions to the rule because who are you going to say is the one that's going to be the arbiter of when they change the rule? 
Are you going to allow it to the umpires to decide on a case-by-case basis? Because then you're putting the umpires in the line of sight. I just and think it's, it's not fair to them. so funny that for years you were the get off my lawn, you can't change this rule. And now that they've changed right? the rule, you're the get off my lawn, they can't have any flexibility like I it's not said, like I've never said you like, can't change. The Cody rule. Bellinger went back to play at Dodger Stadium. It could it, he's not going to go back and have this moment every time where it's the first time. If you give thirty seconds for fans to acknowledge it, no big deal. Instead, they called a strike because he wasn't ready. It just it seems silly to me. Like let the fans have their moment. Let the player have their moment. That's my thing. Why don't we leave it there? Because. That's uh, your thing. It is. And I <laughs> seem to get the last word, apparently, on this one okay. for a moment. I think rules are rules. I know. The, I will that's, say. That's my thing. The new rules impact. Runs are up 14%. Hits are up 9%. Yeah. Average is up 15 points. Steals are up 54%. And games are still 27 minutes shorter. Home runs are up by uh, about 150 through 100, through 447 games. And the, the thing is, it, from 2013 to 2022, there were only six combined games that were less than two hours. In 2023 so far, there have been five. Mm-hmm. So they're getting what they want from it. Let's leave it there. We'll come back from break and get into some horse racing with the Kentucky Derby. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, welcome back from break on the Heart of Sports. With the 149th Kentucky Derby being held this weekend, it is great to be joined by award-winning reporter, Canadian Horse Racing Hall of Fame member, and author of the new book, The Turcots, The Remarkable Story of a Horse Racing Dynasty, Curtis Stock. Thank you so much for giving us some time. Well, thanks for having me on, Jason. Appreciate it. This is uh this is kind of like your Super Bowl this weekend. You got the Derby going on. It looks like you uh you timed this book well. I I think I read it was twenty years in the making for you. But talk about how it came about now and what the process was putting it together. Well, I thought about writing it twenty years ago, but when I was working at the Journal in Edmonton, I found it too hard to write the book and work at the same time but then when COVID hit I said I've got no more excuses not to write it and I really did want to get it out in 2023 because it actually your timing of your interview is perfect because it's exactly 50 years ago to the day that Secretariat won the Kentucky Derby. So tell us a little bit about what what the inspiration was for writing you said that it was 20 years in the making but what was your inspiration for choosing this subject? Well, it's just such a fascinating story of how five brothers from a lumberjack family in a small town in New Brunswick, Drummond, which has a population of 700, went on to become thoroughbred jockeys. And not just thoroughbred jockeys, but very good thoroughbred jockeys, especially Ron with Secretariat, but Rudy wasn't far behind. And uh, it's just, it's a, it's a good story. And fortunately, there's a lot of uh, tragedy that also happens to the family in addition to the triumphs. There were 14 children. You actually spent some time with members of the Turcotte family prepping and interviewing for this book. Talk about what that was like for them to 
relive their their life and experience building up the legacy that they did as a family they were all very good in sharing their stories uh unfortunately noel and uh roger both uh, took their own lives before i could talk to them again but i did spend time with them before while they were alive especially roger roger wrote in in alberta and so did eves and uh ron uh I went and spent three days with him in New Brunswick, but I had talked to him hundreds of times throughout the course of the book. So, sorry about that, Jeff. So tell me about Ron real fast, because you mentioned him. How did Ron go from arriving nearly penniless and picking worms <clears throat> and angling for a few bucks to a jockey on the most famous horse that we're still celebrating 50 years later? Yeah, it was completely by accident that he got into horse racing. He wanted a better life in, and he wanted to get out of the woods in New Brunswick. So him and his good friend, Reg Pelche went to Toronto and uh, went looking for jobs. And as you mentioned, they found uh, the only thing they could find is picking worms at cemeteries and getting $3 for a thousand worms. They were broke. They were going to go back to New Brunswick. And on the uh, first Saturday in May, Ron came down the steps of the boarding house that he was living in. And the landlord happened to be watching the Kentucky Derby and, Ron said, what's that? And the landlord said, the Kentucky Derby. And Ron said, sir, I don't know anything about that. And he said, well, you know, you can't get jobs here. That's Maybe that's what you should be doing. You should be a jockey. And uh, Ron said, what's a jockey? And the landlord said, the little guy is in the white pants. <laughs> two years, within two years, he was Canada's leading rider. You know, you talk about the fact that it's not just one, that, that there's a whole family that's involved in this. What was the dynamic among the brothers being involved with this? They, were they ultra competitive with each other? Uh, oh, yeah. Supportive of each other? Exactly how, what was that dynamic like for them? Well, they were very competitive with each other, but they also uh, were very much a family. Uh, Ron showed Noel how to ride. He showed uh, Rudy how to ride. Um, and he paved the way for her, the other riders to come to the racetracks too so they, they help each other out especially ron ron was always there to guide a guiding hand and or give a guiding hand and uh, they're they're a family but they rode together in some races so they were also very competitive so there this story is kind of in a few parts it's the family and the dynasty it's it's the horse so let's go to secretariat for a little bit uh one of the things you you learned writing the book is just how good Secretariat was. He won the Kentucky Derby by 31 lengths. For people who don't know, that's a football field. <laughs> his yeah, records, his record, or the Belmont, his records still stand for the Derby, yeah. the Belmont, and the Preakness 50 years later. Talk to us about the dominance of this horse, but also the impact that he had that 50 years later, you are still celebrating him. He was the greatest thoroughbred of all time. There's no question about it. He did lose some races, but none of the losses were his fault or the Secretariat's fault. He uh, raced with a fever of 104 once, and Ron had begged him not to run him. Uh, he had an abscess in his lip the size of a quarter in the Wood Memorial, the race before the Kentucky Derby, and Ron couldn't get the horse to relax at all because of the, the abscess. And then uh, he lost the Wood Memorial because he wasn't ready to run in that race. They were going to ride, uh, they were going to run Reva Ridge, who had won the Derby and the uh, Belmont the year before in 1972. But the track came up sloppy and uh, Reva Ridge couldn't stand up in the slop. So they put in Secretariat un unprepared to race. And then he lost that one. And he also lost his first start 
when an apprentice rode him and got him into all sorts of trouble. So the horse should have been undefeated. And uh, Ron says that we never saw the best of Secretary, that he was just getting good when he was retired. You know, we always look at, at horse racing as the horse, but it's also a lot about the jockey. What, 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 how, did, how did Ron and Secretariat get teamed up? Uh, the trainer was uh, Lucien Laurent, who was also a French-Canadian uh, trainer. So Ron and uh, Lucien knew each other going back, and uh, Lucien gave him the mount on uh, Secretariat. So I'm curious about how things have changed over time. The Kentucky Derby was Secretariat's 13th career race. And in this yeah. year's Derby field of 20 horses, Nuns raced more than eight times. Secretary right. raced nine times as a two-year-old. You don't you don't see two-year-olds race that much anymore. Can you talk about how horse racing has changed and the amount of work and experience these horses get? Well, you're right. The, the horses don't run as often as they used to. They're they're giving more and more. They're getting rested. Uh, some of the horses in in uh, Saturday's Kentucky Derby haven't even didn't even run as two year olds. Some have as few as three starts. But it's interesting to note that uh, the Secretariat influence is uh, is in the bloodlines of eight of the twenty horses that are in the Derby, including the favorite uh, Forte. You know, one of the things that I found interesting in the book was the toll that that horse racing takes. We've yeah. heard so much about the toll that it takes on horses. And- and how you know where their careers go after races like this, but but I was interested in the toll that it's taken on jockeys. What made you interested, and what did you learn most from from looking into the toll that that horse racing takes on jockeys? Well, they're all forced to wage the battle of the bulge, and uh, they have to be light to be jockeys. Uh, Ron was 128 pounds when he came to the track, and they told him he needed to be 108. He's weighed as much as 145 pounds when he was in grade 12, and he got down to 110. Um, they live their lives in saunas and sweat boxes. They have to watch what they eat. They'll get in their cars, put layers and layers of clothing on, and turn the heat up as high as it'll go, and uh, just sweat. And they take diuretics like Lasex to, to lose water. Um, they obviously have to watch what they eat. They can't eat very much, and some. Many jockeys are bulimic and purge, so it's it's a very tough life. You know, we talk about the highs of the Turcotte family, the success they had. You know, they won over 8,200 races. They run one purse is just shy of $60 million. But the lows of the Turcotts and the tragedies come through in the book. The book starts with the family losing their home in a fire it goes through the the tragedies from Ron being paralyzed from the waist down to you mentioned some taking their lives, the alcoholism. Talk to us about the tragedies and the challenges this family faced. Well, as you mentioned, they had several tragedies. Ron broke his back in 1978 in New York in a race where he clipped heels with a horse just to the outside of him. The horse kept coming closer and closer to him, and uh, they clipped heels and he went down. And like you say, he's now paralyzed in the waist down and lives in a wheelchair. Uh, Rudy was uh, an excellent rider, and Ron said he was probably a better rider than he was, but he couldn't get his weight down toward the end of his career either. Uh, Roger, he had troubles with the weight and, and alcohol, and Noel was the same way. And unfortunately, Noel and Roger both uh, took their own lives. Eves was the last of the Turcotte brothers to ride, 
and he was involved in a spill somewhat similar to what Ron went through. And uh, he was uh, he went down in, in a spill and fractured his skull and had three brain bleeds. And he was told that he could never ride again either. So they had a lot of triumphs, but they had a lot of tragedies. How important is this weekend or how much do you enjoy what leads up to the weekend that is the Kentucky Derby? I wish I was there. <laughs> it's uh, the emotion and the, the color of the pageantry and the history of the sport all come together in the Kentucky Derby. It's the number one race in the world. It's not the richest race in the world, but it's certainly the most prestigious race in the world. How much time do you spend leading up to that, researching the horses and learning about the histories of each of the people that are in it? Lots, quite a bit. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time. I, I really like handicapping the races, and I've tried to handicap uh, this year's Kentucky Derby. It's a tough one. Forte is the favorite, but uh, there's a horse called uh, Angel of Emotion that I think Angel of Empire. Sorry, that that I think is going to be really tough. He won the Arkansas Derby. If it comes to if it ends up being a muddy track, does that change your what you're thinking? Probably change everything. Yeah. Is it, uh, I haven't even looked, is it forecast for rain? That, I mean, that's the story we've been hearing during the week, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that would make a difference because uh, often when it's sloppy, the horse that gets to the top will be able to carry its speed farther because the other horses get the slop kicked back into their faces and obviously don't like that. So it could be a speed horse that wins the derby if it comes up sloppy. You know, you mentioned the pageantry and, and, miss, and wishing you were there at the derby. You're somebody that's covered Super Bowls, the Masters, the British Open. Talk to us about the pageantry and how special it is at the Derby, at some of these huge races that horse racing has. Well, it celebrates history. The, the Derby does 149 years of it this year. Um, most of the great horses that you associate with horse racing all either ran in the Derby or won the Derby. It's it's the race of the year. Uh, Curtis, did I hear right that you're you're from Edmonton? Yes. All right. Well, I know I know it's Kentucky Derby weekend, but I gotta ask, what is it like for you know for we don't we don't know much about Edmonton down in the United States, right. other than other than the Wayne Gretzky era. So I yeah. know this is a horse racing interview, but I gotta ask, how excited are you about your Edmonton Oilers? Well, pretty excited. Their defense is pretty shaky, though. Uh, they've had a number of problems with uh, a couple of their defensemen who are not uh, doing their jobs, and their goalie can be a little shaky, too. So they have all the firepower with McDavid and Dreisaitl, but they're having problems defensively. That is we a, are jealous. Yeah, that is, a, <laughs> that is a fun series to watch out there, and um, we talked in depth about the Flyers last week, and it's a much sadder story on our end with hockey right yeah, now right. than it is on yours. Yeah. Uh, Curtis, where can people find the book if they'd like to go? Which, you know, if you're not a horse racing fan, it's still a compelling story that people would want to read. You don't have to love horses or love the races to love this book. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's got horse racing as its background, of course, and then, and its theme, but it's, it's a story about a family in New Brunswick and uh, five of them becoming jockeys, but everything that they went through to, to get there. Um, the book is available in most bookstores, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, and now 
Amazon is probably the easiest way to get a hold of one. The book is The Turcots, The Remarkable Story of a Horse Racing Dynasty. Curtis, best of luck with the book and uh, look forward to seeing how your handicapping uh, shakes out tomorrow in the big race. Okay, well, thanks, Jason and Jeffrey. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time. Jeff, some good handicapping tips. That story is fascinating. You're going to take them to the window this weekend? Uh, I wish I was going. It, it has always been my dream to go to the Kentucky Derby. It just seems like such an amazing, you, you know how much I like like with the Army-Navy game, just the pomp and circumstance of everything that happens as well as the actual sporting event. And that's just one that just seems like it would just be incredible to go to. Oh, absolutely. It's a bucket list item for me, for but sure. If you're, yeah, but if you're going to go to an event, I mean, if you're going to go to a window to bet, apparently Alabama baseball is is the place to go if you have information. All right. Can you tell me about this story? Because all of a sudden, Alabama has no baseball coach. Betting has been shut down in states on Alabama baseball. What is going on here? You just said it. <laughs> That's all we know. All, all we know is that I think it was in Ohio, the sports books, Closed betting because they said that there was suspicion. There was a suspicion or suspicious betting that was going on. On I think it was in Alabama and Alabama versus LSU. Yeah. So and, they they detected suspicious bets on it. Surveillance video from the Bet MGM Sportsbook in Cincinnati indicated the better was communicating with the baseball coach for Alabama. Uh, at the time the wagers were placed, and then Alabama pitcher Luke Holdman, who was slated to start that contest, reliever Hagen Banks was told an hour before the game that he would be starting instead. So where there were lots of different pieces that came together, and in the end, Alabama's baseball coach is out. Zero tolerance. Just out. Yeah, um, and so that's, you just said, well, I don't know anything more than that. All I know is, is that the coach is out after there was sus- suspicious betting. I can't say suspicious, but... Um, you're going to see more of this. I mean, you and I talk about gambling and sports time after time after time, and you're going to see more of this. I don't know how you get it out. I think the door is open now and it's going to be harder and harder. I mean, we talked a couple weeks ago about betting in the locker room and why that's okay or isn't okay. The more and more that sports lets gambling in, the more and more you're going to have bad influences dealing with this. I will tell you though, I don't know. I don't know how Alabama's, athletic director continues to survive everything that's going on surprisingly alabama football is the one that doesn't have any problems despite all of their success alabama basketball was an embarrassment this year and we've talked about it they have been they were a flat-out embarrassment for not suspending players that were involved in serious allegations and now you have a situation where their baseball coach is fired in the middle of the season after suspicious betting I don't know how the athletic director doesn't get in deep, deep trouble for the fact that it appears that there are problems with the, with the program down there. I just think that these sports are going to have to figure out how to make the lines <laughs> brighter for people. Not that they're not bright, but this betting occurred at a baseball ballpark. <laughs> That's where it was done. And we're seeing more of these establishments set up at stadiums. But apparently what's going on is these players and people are being tracked based on their usage from their apps. They're not doing it at windows. They think they're getting away with it because they're doing it on their mobile app, but that's being tracked back to the teams. And I just think that I don't think frankly, that this is a big enough example. I think there will be a bigger example made because people will try to push the lines more. And I'm not talking about fantasy. 
you've seen it yeah, but, in but other see, states the... and countries. They're trying to prevent match fixing and game fixing. That's what they're worried about, and that's what Alabama seemed to have going on. Yeah, here but with the but see, that's it. You say it's not a big enough event. The fact is, is that's probably where a lot of this is going on, where people don't have all their eyes. That the the suspicious betting activity in a college football playoff game is less likely to happen because of all the eyes and all the money that's on it. If you have a college baseball game, how many, as great as LSU is, they're the, I think they're the best team in college baseball, and they have stars galore on that team. But the fact is, how many people outside of LSU and Alabama are paying attention to a regular season college baseball game or a regular season lacrosse game in college? Those are the ones that if you're going to do stuff like this, you're probably going to be apt to do it because the eyes aren't on you. That's going to be the last word for this week, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.